here. Thanks for organizing this uh, talk on a topic which is very close to my heart. So uh, let me begin by uh, telling you about the structure of this talk. It's fairly simple. Now, I have prepared a lecture for this occasion, which I'm going to read out. And uh, this will take about 25 minutes or so. And uh, uh, following that, we can directly go into the question and answer session. I'll be very happy to take questions and uh, further dilate on the topic. To begin with, I will uh, give an introduction to Anushilan Tattva as expounded in Bhagavad Chandra Chattopadhyay's works such as Dharma Tattva and uh, Anandamot and also uh, his other works like Krishna Charitra and uh, some of his essays that he wrote uh, in the 1880s. Anushilan Tattva, uh, which can be translated as the system of cultivation or doctrine of cultivation, is a new articulation of the Hindu religion by Sahitya Samrat Rishi Bankim Chattopadhyay. In the text, this has been sometimes referred to as the doctrine or system of culture in English, but I am going to avoid this nomenclature uh, and translation because sometimes the phrase doctrine of culture can refer to cultural relativism, which is a rather modern or postmodern doctrine and has nothing in common with Anushilan Tattva, which is the subject matter of our talk today. So to avoid such confusion, I'm going to use phrases like doctrine or system of cultivation for translating Anushilan Tattva. Bhagavad Chandra systematically developed this Anushilan Tattva in his dialogic work titled Dharma Tattva. By dialogic, I mean structure, the format of this uh, book is in the form of a dialogue, which has uh, two characters. One of these is named Guru and the other is named Shishya, as simple as that. So this is a dialogue that is happening between the Guru and the Shishya. It's a philosophical discourse through which uh, the tattva or the essence of dharma is being expounded, is being interpreted and explained. This was published in the form of a book in 1888, uh, though a large portion of the work was already being published in the form of uh, individual essays and uh, articles in the Bengali magazine Nobojibon, which was edited by Akhwai Chandra Shorkar between the years 1884 and 1885. Bakim Chandra edited these essays and added some more material to them to bring it all out in the form of a single volume, which he titled Dharma Tattva Pratham Bhag Anushilan or Dharma Tattva First Part, Part 1, Anushilan. This choice of title uh, actually hints at Bankim's plan of uh, publishing subsequent parts of this particular work, uh, which never materialized and eventually Bankim Chandra passed away in 1894 at a rather early age of 55. Now, interestingly, Bankim had offered some of the major tenets of this reformulation of the Hindu religion in his celebrated novel, Anandamot which incidentally features the national song of India, Vande Mataram. However, the exposition of Bunkim's Anushilan Tattva was not limited to the two works, namely Dharma Tattva and Anandamot, that I have mentioned in the title of my talk here. 
In reality, this exposition extends to Bankim's other well-known works, the most prominent among them being the Krishna Charitra or Krishna Charitra, wherein he even mentions the basic framework of the Anushilan Tattva as represented by the main conclusions of Dharma Tattva. In addition to this, the Anushilan Tattva has been expounded in Bankim's partial translation of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita with his own commentary. So uh, this was an unfinished translation commentary of work by Bankim Chandra. And uh, also his other essays like uh, Devatattva o Hindu Dharma, Devtattva Hindu Dharma in Bengali, also includes some interpretation of uh, what he describes as Anushilan Tattva that we find most particularly and uh, systematically developed in uh, the title Dharma Tattva. We find a lot of intertextual references in all of these texts that I have just mentioned here. Now coming to Anushilan Tattva proper, what is Anushilan Tattva if that question is asked? We have already stated that the Anushilan Tattva is a kind of reformulation uh, or what can be said to be a new articulation of the Hindu religion uh, or Sanatana Dharma. To understand this claim, uh, we will look into the basic framework of the Anushilan Tattva, which consists of uh, seven main propositions. I will try to list them down one by one. Number one, man has certain capacities or faculties. Bonkib has termed these as vrittis. The cultivation of these capacities or faculties, their development and ultimately their fulfillment uh, is what makes us human. Okay, so these various vrittis, as Bonkim calls them, are certain human capacities or human faculties, and one has to go on cultivating them in order to gradually develop and ultimately reach a kind of fulfillment for each of the vrittis. And this fulfillment is what makes us human beings in the first place. The second, this was the first uh, proposition. And the second proposition uh, in this uh, framework of Anushilan Tattva is that in such development and uh, fulfillment of the human faculties consists the dharma of man. So if a question is posed, what is the dharma of human beings? Then it can be answered by simply repeating the first proposition of the Anushilam Tattva framework. The third proposition says that there is an optimum limit or extent to which each of these faculties, these human capacities, should be cultivated and not beyond. And these limits or extents are determined by the proportions at which they attain a perfect balance or harmony with each other. The fourth proposition goes on to say that this perfect balance or harmony is wheel, W-E-A-L, wheel. Or in Bokim's own words, in Bangla, he has called it shuk or sukha. The fifth proposition of this framework of Anushilan Tattva says, when each of these vittis or human faculties are properly cultivated to their respective optimum limits, they are oriented Godwards towards Ishwara. And such orientation is the right Anushilan or cultivation of a vritti. 
And that indeed is bhakti. This is the fifth proposition of the Anushinatattva framework. The sixth proposition says that God or Ishvara is immanent. That is to say that he is omnipresent, he is present in all beings, he or she or it, you know, and uh, hence love for all, all beings is a necessary part of bhakti. Without this sort of love for all beings, there can be no bhakti in God or Ishvara, there can be no humanity, no humanness, and no dharma ultimately. The final or the seventh proposition of the Anushilan Tattva says that this love includes the love for oneself, love for one's kith and kin, family and friends, love for one's country, Swadesh Priti, love for animals, and daya or mercy. Considering the human condition, this final proposition also goes on to say that love of country of Swadesh Priti, Swadesh Prem, uh, stands out as the supreme among all these various kinds of affection. So these are the seven propositions in which the whole of Anushilam Tattva, which is uh, you know, described and explained in a 100 plus page uh, book, in this 100 plus page book called uh, Dharma Tattva, it can be summarized through these seven main propositions. Noteworthy things uh, here is that the final uh, verdict, so the noteworthy thing uh, in these seven propositions is that the final verdict on what is the supreme dharma for mankind, Bankim gives the answer that it is Swadesh Priti or Swadesh Prem, love of one's own country, uh, which is the uh, highest or supreme among all kinds of uh, affection and all kinds of dharma. So in Anandamot, we find that the novel opens with a rather short but cryptic prologue. Okay? And uh, this is uh, interesting to note that uh, Anandamot is uh, a novel which has always provided a lot of inspiration to uh, our uh, revolutionary nationalists uh, and even the moderate nationalists, uh, so to speak. And especially the song Vande Mataram, which uh, ultimately was adopted as the national song of India by the Constituent Assembly in 1950, when we gave ourselves our uh, constitution, the constitution of India. And therefore, the fact that in Anushilan Tattva itself, Bankim proclaims that love of one's country is the supreme of all kinds of affection and dharma that human beings can aspire to have, shows us the organic relationship, the connection between Dharma Tattva and the Anushilan Tattva that has been expounded in it and Anandamot, the novel. So coming back to the discussion on Anandamot, uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, the contents of Anandamot and especially of the first part, the prologue. We find that this novel opens with a short but cryptic kind of a prologue beginning with an apprehension-inducing, very foreboding kind of poetic description of a dark, vast forest. The prologue closes with a brief exchange between two unnamed and unidentified human voices. This exchange between these two voices goes as follows. 
and I quote, a little while later, the sound came again. Again, the voice of man ran forth, troubling the hush. Shall the desire of my heart ever be fulfilled? Three times the wide sea of darkness was thus shaken. Then the answer came, what is the stake put down? The first voice replied, I have staked my life and all its riches. The echo answered, life, it is a small thing which all can sacrifice. What else is there? What more can I give? This was the answer, thy soul's worship." Unquote. This portion, by the way, is taken from the English translation of Anandamot, which was done by Sri Aurobindo and his younger brother, Barindra Kumar Ghosh. The fact that they took the trouble of translating a Bengali novel is testimony to the great influence upon their generation exerted by this particular novel. Both of them are representative of that generation of Jugantar and Anushilan Samiti affiliated revolutionary patriots, nationalists, who were ready to offer themselves up to all kinds of endeavors that would free India from foreign rule with little thought to personal inconvenience. Uh, it is interesting to note an official report, to be specific, the Rowlett Committee report, uh, that has to say something about the influence of this novel and of Bunkim Chandra in general upon the generation of revolutionary nationalists. And I quote from the Rowlett Committee report, it will be remembered that in 1906, 1906, was published the pamphlet Bhavani Mandir. This was written by Sri Aurobindo, as a matter of fact, which set out the aims and objects of the revolutionaries. It was remarkable in more ways than one. The central idea as to a given religious order is taken from the well-known novel Anandamot of Bankim Chandra. It is a historical novel having for its setting the Sanyasi rebellion of 1774, when armed bands of sannyasis came into conflict with the East India Company and were suppressed after a temporary career of success." Unquote. To return to the subject matter of the prologue to Anandamot, we have mentioned already that it goes into a poetic reverie in describing the dense darkness of a forest that spans multiple paragraphs. This darkness is in fact symbolic of the condition of Bengal in particular and India in general in the second half of the 18th century, that is late 1750s onwards and until 1774 in particular, when the Sanyasi rebellion occurred. When the British East India Company was beginning to gain some foothold in the political and economic scenarios of our country. Chaos was the order of the day. The Mughal rule was in the decline. The Muslim governors of the Mughal emperor in Bengal had by then achieved a high degree of autonomy and were mismanaging the political and economic affairs of the Bengal province with impunity. The British East India Company had, of course, secured the Diwani or tax collecting rights from the Mughal emperor in 1765. The lack of governance and religious fanaticism 
of the Muslim Nawabs of Bengal on one hand, and the ruthless extraction of taxes by the British East India Company on the other, resulted in a famine that wiped out an estimated one third of the population of Bengal. This is known as Chiyattorer Monnuntor in Bangla, the famine of 1176, 1176 of the Bengali calendar, which corresponds to the Gregorian calendar years of 1769 and 1770. This was one of the primary impetuses behind the uprising known as Sanyasi Rebellion. You can find more details about the Sanyasi Rebellion in D.N. Lorenzen's work. We do not have the time nor the scope to dwell upon this particular subject of the Sanyasi Rebellion here, so we will return to the prologue of Anandamot once again. There, in that prologue, as we saw in the excerpts from Sri Aurobindo and Barindra Kumar Ghosh's English translation of the Bangla novel, the fulfillment of someone's heart's desire requires a stake. What is the stake put down, within quotations, was the question asked by an anonymous voice in the dark foreboding forest. Life and all its riches were offered, as a matter of fact, but they were dismissed as inadequate. The final resolution of the question given in the prologue was, and I quote once again, thy soul's worship, unquote. Please note that although Sri Aurobindo and Barindra had used the phrase soul's worship, the original Bangla text actually mentions the word bhakti, that is bhakti. This is the crucial connection between the novel of Bunkim, uh, that is Anandamot, and his philosophical discourse in Dharmatattva or Dharmatattva. Let me explain this point in some detail because it is important in understanding the core of Bunkim's Anushilam Tattva as expounded in Dharmatattva, Anandamat, and his other works. We have already seen that the Anushilam Tattva, which we have translated as the system or doctrine of cultivation, has seven main propositions. Of these, the very first states that man has certain capacities or faculties, which Bunkim calls vrittis. It is important to point out here that this term vritti is not to be confused with the term vritti as it is used or found in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra or other yoga related texts. You know, uh, we all know about the famous uh, sutra, uh, Yoga Shrutta Vritti Nirodha. That term, vritti, as it is used in the technical uh, darshanika parlance, in the technical philosophical parlance, uh, is not to be confused with how Bunkim has used this word vritti in Dharma Tattva, where he explains Anushilam Tattva. This is rather a very peculiar Bengali use of the Sanskrit word which Bunkim himself translates as faculty in his Dharmatattva. Anyway, the first among the seven propositions of the basic framework of uh, Anushilam Tattva further states that one has to cultivate these faculties which all human beings are born with. Through proper cultivation of such, these faculties will develop and if one persists, then the faculties will ultimately find their fulfillment. This, the Anushilan Tattva declares, is what humanness or humanhood 
the term that Bunkim uses in his Bangla is Manushutto or Manushyatva consists in, and this is the dharma of man. The extent to which such gradual development and ultimately of each faculty, ultimately the fulfillment of each faculty is to be achieved, is determined by one condition and one condition only. Whether all these faculties are in a perfect balance or harmony with each other. Such balanced or harmonious fulfillment of the human faculties is wheel or sukha. Bokim admits, uh, I think, in uh, another of his uh, more celebrated works, uh, that is Krishna Charitra, that it is rare indeed to come across such perfectly balanced fulfillment through optimum cultivation and development of the human faculties. He enumerates many such faculties, but highlights four principal ones, Shaririki, Yanarjani, Karyakarini, and Chittaranjan. So let me explain what these are. Shaririki is that faculty that has to do with the development of the physique. It is somatic in nature. It has to do with the body. Jnanarjani is that faculty which helps us acquire knowledge from different sources, form concepts or ideas in our brain and synthesize them and put them in a framework so as to make sense of various things, various information that we are bombarded with at all the time uh, that we are awake or even when we are dreaming. Then there is the faculty called Karyakarini. By this, what Banki means is uh, the faculty of endeavor or initiative, the drive, the will to execute something. It is the enterprising faculty of human beings through which they take initiatives to do something and see it through the end. Finally, Bunkim gives us the faculty of Chittaranjan, which is called Chittaranjan. It is the aesthetic sense, aesthetic faculty of human beings that is indicated by this term. Now, as soon as he mentions these four main human faculties, in addition to some others, an objection is raised by the Shishya. The Guru is uh, basically uh, giving or listing these faculties and the Shishya who is the listener to this discourse and who is also the participant in this discourse asks questions, raises objections. The objection that the Shishya raises at this point when the various human faculties are enumerated by the Guru is this, whether such an ideal is attainable at all, you know, an ideal human being or an ideal being where all the human faculties have been cultivated, developed and ultimately uh, fulfilled. And also where all these faculties are in harmony, are in perfect balance with each other. If such kind of a being is at all possible to come across. The objection is... Uh, acknowledged by the Guru and is also resolved. He resolves this objection uh, by saying that God or Ishwara is the only example of such an ideal. However, it is difficult for man, he admits, to comprehend the infinite nature and qualities of Ishwara at first when he has started his sadhana or upasana, when he has started his worship of Ishwara. 
and his journey into a religious life. Therefore, one should make those human lives as the ideal of anushilan or cultivation who have incorporated greater parts of this ideal. That is, those who are considered already as Ishwara incarnated in the human form. Here we see that Bhunkim has given new articulation, a reformulation of the Tattva of Avatara. Bhunkim here gives examples, firstly, of Buddha and Christ, okay, who are the founders and expounders of world religions. He actually gives uh, you know, examples of four classes of beings. The first of such classes is Buddha or Christ. You know, figures like Buddha or Christ who have founded great religions on us, who have, you know, uh, expounded up upon those religions. And then he talks about the other class of beings who are called rishis. And he enumerates people like Janaka, Narada, Vashishta. You will see that they are different kinds of rishis. Janaka is called Rajarshi, who is Rishi and Raja. Narada is called Devarshi, who is a Rishi among the Devas, among the gods with a small g. And uh, Vashishta, who is a uh, Brahmarshi, who is uh, you know, a Rishi among those who have attained the highest knowledge uh, or Brahman. This is the second class of uh, beings that Vankim uh, refers to. Then the third one includes figures like Sri Rama, Yudhishthira, Arjuna, Lakshmana, and Devavrata Bhishma, who are the greatest Kshatriyas, who are also you know, kings and philosophers at the same time, who have reached the epitome of political power and are yet detached. They hold the scepters in their hand and at the same time they teach the highest dharmic ideals. And ultimately, the final class of people, and actually there is only one who belongs in uh, this class, as mentioned by Bunkim, is Sri Krishna. Sri Krishna, as he is found in Mahabharata principle. Through his Krishna Charitra, Bankim establishes the historicity of Sri Krishna as a key personage in the Mahabharata milieu who had achieved the greatest harmony and fulfillment of all human faculties. And thus he justifies why Hindus worship him or have worshipped him through the centuries as Ishwar, as God. In the fifth and sixth propositions of the Anushilan Tattva, if you remember, Orienting the development and fulfillment of human faculties Godwards towards Ishwara has been described by Bonkim as Anushilan proper, as cultivation proper, a state which he has called Bhakti. Thus, Bonkim establishes that Bhakti in Ishwara or God, which is the you know, faculty, which is the practice of love, inclusive of love in all beings, is the culmination of the cultivation or anushilam. It is for this reason that we see in the prologue to Anandamot an emphasis on bhakti. If you remember that quotation uh, from the translation of Sri Aurobindra and Baridra Kumar Ghosh, we see that not one's wealth, not even one's life uh, is adequate for the fulfillment of the 
person who's asking the question whether my heart's desire will be fulfilled or not. And if you go on to read the novel, uh, Anandamot, you will see that that desire of the, the voiceless one was to free Bharat Mata, that is uh, India, from foreign rule. That was the heart's desire with which this person, this voice had set forth. We will get to know in the novel who this person was, who this voice belonged to. I'm not going into the details of that. You can read the novel and enjoy it for yourself. But uh, the point to be noted here is that not even wealth, not one's entire life are enough for the attainment of such a great ideal, such a great desire, uh, that of freeing one's country from foreign rule. The answer that was given to this unnamed voice by another unnamed voice is that you have to put your bhakti at stake. You have to offer your bhakti. And uh, through very meticulous perusal of Dharma Tattva, Bankim's uh, philosophical discourse in Dharma Tattva, where he gives the Anushilan Tattva, the basic framework of uh, which was used by revolutionary nationalists to create other frameworks. As we have already mentioned, Sri Aurobindo's Bhavani Mandir, which uh, takes a lot of inspiration from both Anandamot as well as the Anushilan Tattva as explained, interpreted in Bokim's Dharma Tattva. We will see that Bhakti in Ishwara, which is inclusive of all kinds of love, love in all beings, love for oneself, love for one's family and friends, love for animals, love for lesser beings, and ultimately love for one's own country. Swadesh Prem, Swadesh Priti uh, is the word that has been used by Bankim in Dharma Tattva while explaining Anushtam Tattva. So that is the link between Arandamat and Anushilam Tattva and is also the ultimate message which inspired the revolutionary nationalists of our country, especially from the years uh, 1905 down to 1930s, late 1930s, and ultimately in the endeavor of uh, uh, Nitaji Subhash Chandra Bose. So throughout uh, this uh, era, especially in Bengal, this era is known as Ugni Juk or the uh, fiery age, if I may use that sort of a translation of the Bangla name of that era, Agni Jug, Agni Yuga in Hindi or Sanskrit maybe, we see that uh, Anandamot and Bunkim's Anushilan Tattva have uh, exerted a very crucial influence upon the psyche, uh, upon the symbols, upon the language and tactics, even strategy of the uh, revolutionary nationalists. We even see the names of organizations uh, based on the idea of Anushilan Tattva, like Anushilan Samiti, uh, which was a key revolutionary organization based uh, in Kolkata and Dhaka, and also other organizations like Jugantur Tal, which was also closely linked with Barindra Kumar Ghosh, Sri Aurobindo, before Sri Aurobindo became Sri Aurobindo. He was Aurobindo Ghosh at that time. So all these people had drawn their influence, drawn their inspiration, drawn their symbols and words through which they articulated their doctrine of revolutionary nationalism are to be found in 
Bokim's works primarily. This is where I will stop and invite questions. If you have any, I will be very happy to answer them. And thus we can further this discussion. Thank you. I'm very interested in the uh, Sri Aurobindo's translations of a few passages. If you could pick up a few more passages which have been translated by him. Certainly, certainly. I would love to. So I am reading from Anandamot Prologue as translated into English by Sri Aurobindo and his brother Barindra Kumar Ghosh. And I quote, A wide, interminable forest. Most of the trees are shawls, but other kinds are not wanting. Treetop mingling with treetop, foliage melting into foliage, the interminable lines progress without crevice, without gap, without even a way for the light to enter. League after league, and again league after league, the boundless ocean of leaves advances tossing wave upon wave in the wind. Underneath, thick darkness. Even at midday, the light is dim and uncertain, a seat of terrific gloom. There, the foot of man never treads. There, except the illimitable rustle of the leaves and the cry of wild beasts and birds, no sound is heard. In this interminable, impenetrable wilderness of blind gloom. It is night. The hour is midnight and a very dark midnight. Even outside the woodland, it is dark and nothing can be seen. Within the forest, the piles of gloom are like the darkness in the womb of earth itself. Bird and beast are utterly and motionlessly still. What hundreds of thousands what millions of birds, beasts, insects, flying things have their dwelling within that forest, but not one is giving forth a sound. Rather, the darkness is within the imagination, but inconceivable is that noiseless stillness of the ever-murmurous, ever-noise-filled earth. In that limitless empty forest, in the solid darkness of that midnight, in that unimaginable silence, there was a sound. Shall the desire of my heart ever be fulfilled? After the sound, the forest reaches sank again into stillness. Who would have said then that a human sound had been heard in those wilds? A little while after, the sound came again. Again, the voice of man rang forth, troubling the hush. Shall the desire of my heart ever be fulfilled? Three times the wide sea of darkness was thus shaken. Then the answer came, what is the stake put down? The first voice replied, I have staked my life and all its riches. The echo answered, life, it is a small thing which all can sacrifice. What else is there? What more can I give? This was the answer thy soul's worship." Unquote. If you read this prologue in its original, you reach a particularly shivering end by the time the word bhukti is pronounced. And you will see, as I was saying, that this uh, foreboding darkness, this stillness of the forest, of the deepest part of the forest, is very central to the concepts that are 
given forth that are set forth by Bonkim in Anandamot, as well as those that actually Sri Aurobindo has taken, borrowed from Anandamot uh, to write down the pamphlet Bhavani Mandir, which was mentioned in the Rowlett Committee report. You see, it is a night of Amavasya, okay, when there is no moon in the sky and it is midnight. What is the setting significant for? It is exactly in an Amavasya, in a night uh, where there is no moon. And that too, on top of that, the midnight hour, which is selected for the worship of goddess Kali. So for Kali Puja, we use the Amavasya night and the midnight hour is said to be a very good time for the uh, worship of Kali. And we see that indeed, Mother Kali is used as the symbol, the representation of uh, India or Bharat Mata at a time when it was ravaged by foreign rule in Anandamot. You will see in Anandamot, there are three stages in which the mother has been described. The first is Ma Ja Chile, or what mother has been. Okay, what the mother has been. In this, the representation of the mother is that of Jagadhatri, which is a form of Durga or Kali or, or Shakti, where the mother is seen to be seated on a lion. And uh, under her feet, we see that the Mahisha and the, and the elephant, which are representative of the vices of human beings, are trampled. This is what mother has been. Then the second phase uh, or second representation of the mother is what mother is presently or what mother has become. And that representation is given as mother Kali. So she has no robes on her body. She has no clothes and she is... Uh, standing on uh, a dead body, okay, the Shava, which is the Shiva. And this mother dwells in the Shmashana, in the cremation grounds. So the entire country has become basically a cremation ground. And the Adishthatri Devi, the goddess who presides over such kind of a place, such kind of a scenario, such kind of a country, is no one but Mother Kali. And finally, third representation of the mother, Mother India uh, and Shakti that has been given by Bonkim in Anandamot is Durga. He describes her as Maja Huiben, what mother will become in the future. So uh, the foreboding scene in the prologue that we just read out is to give this uh, you know, instinctive appeal to the reader's mind that now we are going to encounter the mother in her representation as Kali, where she has been ravaged by foreign rule, by barbarians, by all sorts of looters and decoits. And there she is present with her kharga in hand and uh, she is going to just slaughter the demons, all the enemies of her children. So this is why I think it is very significant uh, that such a prologue has been inserted at the very beginning of Anandamani.
read it so many times ananmat but uh, the with your descriptions i'm going to read it again uh, it will be uh, another kind of understanding of the book thank you very much for that i have like many questions one is maja hoiben uh, has that happened after uh, independence uh, it is very difficult to uh, speculate on what bonkim would have felt but uh, why don't we start with uh, what you feel what what do you think uh, has have we attained the stage where uh, maja hoiben or what mother will become the dashaprahana dharini madurga has uh, our motherland become that i think uh, in recent times there has been a, a slight movement towards that Uh, but i do not know whether it will continue or not and uh for that you know the political system has is mostly responsible but also people of the nation are responsible and like your rishihud university and all are doing uh, indian knowledge systems is uh, will play a very major role in that so uh bunkim talks about the three representations of bharat mata Uh, what mother has been what mother presently is in the setting in which he is uh, situating his novel which is uh, 1760s and what mother would become uh, and uh, this question from nina ji uh, uh, was pertaining to what mother would become whether we have actually attained or fulfilled that sort of future so as the you know indications from her own admissions were pointing out that uh, we have we are, we are far from reaching that sort of a stage where we have uh, attained the optimum fulfillment of uh, our country's uh, development in all respects development i'm using the term development here in a very wide sense and i'm not talking about merely socio political or economic development but rather uh, the moral uh, and especially spiritual uh, cultural development of the country and uh, despite all things that we have achieved uh, in the last 75 years it's actually a very uh, fitting time to reflect back on what we have achieved since our independence in 1947 and uh, bring back anandamot into the discourse uh, i i feel that bunkim uh, has provided a very important lens for us to look at uh, the goals the ideals that we can achieve that, that that we should have achieved in the 75 years of our uh, existence as a free as a as an independent country and we have failed to do that in uh, uh, all respects and especially the most important respects of recovering our own self recovering our own agency in understanding our past in understanding ourselves we have not been able to establish uh, swaraj in all realms we we definitely have established swaraj in the political realm although some of our friends may raise a question whether that swaraj is swaraj in the best sense of the term because there might be some critiques some valid critiques in fact of the constitution whether you know parts of the constitution are nothing but a continuation of the legacy of the british administration because we we know that it it was indeed the government of india act 1935 which resulted in the development of the uh, constitution sorry constitu constituent assembly which uh, ultimately drafted the constitution 
So there can be a critique of that sort, but I'm not going into that. I'm just, uh, you know, echoing some of the apprehensions, some of the questions that can come to many of our minds as to whether we have attained Swaraj in the right sense of the term, in the perfect sense of the term, in uh, not just political domain, uh, but also in the cultural and most importantly, the intellectual domain. So irrespective of the kind of Swaraj that we have uh, attained for ourselves, uh, we are ruled by Indians, there is no doubt by that, but uh, whether the thought processes, the intellectual universe, the conceptual universe of uh, ourselves, you know, when I talk about Indians, I'm talking about myself, uh, of ourselves practically, whether our thoughts are decolonized, whether we have attained Swaraj in ideas, as K.C. Bhattacharya, a famous 20th century philosopher would have put it, that is a big question. And in fact, uh, it is interesting to remember what uh, Bunkip Chandra has made the guru explain to his shishya in Dharmatattva here in this regard, where he is using certain uh, English terms and even Bangla words uh, such as vritti. So the Bangla word vritti, as I have pointed out, is uh, quite different from the way it is used in uh, Sanskrit texts like Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, uh, Yoga Shritta Vritti Nirodhaha. The use of the term Vritti is completely different from, if not completely, but quite different from uh, the way it is used in the Sanskrit Darshanika philosophical parlance. And uh, the reason uh, that has been cited by the character of Guru in Dharma Tattva in this regard is that the educated class by which he means, and he clearly mentions this, he means those who are educated in the uh, British university system. In, in fact, Bunkim himself was a product of the, uh, the British education system. Uh, he was uh, one, of the, uh, one of the first graduates of the University of Calcutta. University of Calcutta, University of Madras, and University of uh, Bombay. These are the three universities that had been established around the same time, around 1857-1858 by the British, and uh, Bunkim was uh, uh, among the first batch of graduates. So uh, he knows the, this particular class that he's talking about, that he's commenting upon, and he says that it, it, they are not to be blamed for you know, different usages of uh, uh, the conceptual frameworks from their own language, from their own language, by that he means Sanskrit, which is being used in Bangla in, with twists and turns of its own, with peculiarities of its own. And he says that it is a natural outcome of the education system uh, or through which this particular educated class has gone through, which is uh, what has made them use these terms with a pinch of salt. And therefore, one has to be very, very careful in dealing with these terms. And when English words are being used, sometimes the shishya character raises an objection. He says that uh, you are using ideas of uh, the uh, French philosopher, sociologist Auguste Comte, and you are using the ideas of Spinoza and Herbert Spencer. To this, uh, Bonkim has a very interesting reply, uh, which he makes through his uh, character Guru. He says that uh, just because some of the ideas of uh, Hinduani, which is basically the word that he uses for Hindu Dharma or even Hindutva, uh, just because some of the uh, concepts of uh, Comte or Spinoza or Herbert Spencer uh, match with certain concepts and uh, uh, 
you know, uh, ideas of Hindutva or Hindu religion, we cannot uh, simply discard them. Rather, I would describe people like Spencer and Spinoza as European Hindus who have come very close to the ideals of uh, uh, Hindutva, uh, who have come very close to the ideals of Vedanta, to be more specific, especially in Spinoza's work. He mentions this while they were discussing Spinoza's work in Dharmatattva. He mentions that we can regard Spinoza as uh, a European Vedanti. So just because it has been uh, matching with the works of Comte or Spinoza, we cannot discard Vedanta. That would be foolish. Rather, we should strive towards uh, translating the ideas and concepts of uh, you know, European philosophers, non-Indian philosophers and thinkers as they match with our ideals and ideas. This is something that Kesi Bhattacharya also says, you know, the philosopher who I have referred to. KCB says that uh, our goal uh, to attain Swarajin ideas is to assimilate, is to translate the ideas and ideals of uh, foreign thinkers into our ideas and ideals. So basically it is a task of assimilating and not of exclusion which is what sets apart the works of philosophers like Kesi Bhattacharya or the works of Bunkim in Dharmatattva especially. So uh, we haven't attained Ma Durga's uh, ultimate fulfillment, uh, the representation of ultimate fulfillment, which we can attain only if we go by, you know, not only, but I would say uh, Bunkim has laid down an ethic through his Anushilan Tattva in Dharma Tattva. If we follow uh, the ethical injunctions of Bunkim, I think uh, it is rationalistic and it is uh, very logically laid out. It is explained meticulously uh, through objections and the resolution of objections uh, validated against uh, doubts and uh, you know adversarial thought. And therefore, the anushilan or the cultivation of human faculties, uh, their gradual development and their ultimate fulfillment in a manner that all human faculties are in a perfect balance. So uh, to give an example of this perfect balance, one question that has been asked by the Shishya, the disciple in Dharma Tattva to his guru is that uh, the faculty of uh, desire, karma, is one of the human faculties. So if the guru is saying that uh, all the human faculties should be developed to their ultimate fulfillment, then wouldn't it be a perversion of human ideals to uh, give karma or desire a free run? To explain this, basically the uh, fourth or the third tenet, uh, the proposition among the seven propositions that I have listed out has been given by Bonkim in Anushilam Tattva. He says that it is, while it is important to develop gradually each of the human faculties uh, to find their ultimate fulfillment, it is also important to see that no one faculty clashes with the growth of other faculties. And that is what he means by the perfect balance that has to be attained, the harmony that, is, that has to be attained by human beings who are undergoing anushilan, who are undergoing cultivation of their faculties. So this is what uh, Bunkim uh, achieves in a very rational and uh, dialogical way. Anandmat had a major, major impact on the freedom struggle. 
लेकिन दे से दैट इट वाज अ पॉलिटिकल एलेग्री इन फैक्ट साउंड्स वेरी स्पिरिचुअल एंड इनवर्ड ओरिएंटेड एंड फॉर एथिक्स एंड ऑल बट कुड यू कमेंट ऑन इट्स इट बीइंग अ पॉलिटिकल एलेग्री यू हैव मेंशन दैट बेसिकली मा दैट ही मेंशंस इज रिप्रेजेंटेटिव ऑफ मदर इंडिया but anything else because how come it had such a huge impact being an adhyatmik or a spiritual novel i actually tried to you know respond to this sort of an uh, question i anticipated it and tried to respond to it by showing the link between anushilan uh, tattva at his as it has been expounded in bonkim's dharma tattva and his uh, creative work his novel anandamod by establishing a link of bhakti uh, why bhakti is so crucial as uh, the prologue of uh, anandamot declares it and uh, that question can actually be answered by going into the details of anushilan tattva you see in anushilan tattva the seven main propositions that i described uh, in my lecture the final one uh, or rather the fifth and the sixth uh, including the final one they clearly tell us that it is uh, a kind of all embracing love which is uh, which when it is oriented towards god when when it is oriented godwards towards ishwara it attains its fulfillment okay and that has been described as uh, bhakti and that is the highest dharma now among all these kinds of love uh, love for oneself love of uh, one's kitan kin friends family love of animals uh, showing mercy on lesser beings etc etc the ultimate one the supreme kind of love as has been you know asserted by bunki in anushilan tattva or dharma tattva is love for one's own country so swadesh prem he says that considering the human condition manushyar avastha vivechana kuriya we can say he uh, makes his character of guru Uh, say it uh, to the shishya that it is swadesh priti or love of one's country that is the supreme kind of love that human beings can exercise so um, this is also a kind of instinctively understandable position because we have seen that uh, people can die for one's country uh, and uh, it is uh, if you try to understand that instinct we can see that it is uh, the protection of what one values one's family one's immediate society and uh, one's heritage one inheritance that one has uh, gathered from their ancestors uh, are all valuable things and it is to preserve to protect such uh, valuable inheritance as well as the ones uh, that that are closest to oneself uh, it is a kind of expansion of uh, the self love the love for oneself that grows into love of uh, family and then grows into the love of uh, the nation uh, love of one's country and i think that's why uh, bonkim says that uh, or rather the character of guru through uh, that character bonkim says that love of uh, one's country is the highest kind of love that human beings can express at any given condition having said that one can also see that bonkim has actually laid down an ethic a path to be followed by those who are on this on this journey to become you know perfect human beings so to speak with the ideal of sri krishna of course 
because uh, in Krishna Charitra, actually in the in the introduction to Krishna Charitra, which was a text written after Dharma Tattva, Bunkim refers back to uh, his Dharma Tattva uh, and uh, quotes subsequently, uh, you know, sorry, he quotes copiously from Dharma Tattva and establishes that uh, no character from the uh, Itihasa Purana of India can be taken as the ideal uh, in the way that Sri Krishna can be. He says that uh, we can take the examples of Shakya Singha, which is Bhagavan Buddha, but he says that he is only Kopin Dhari Dharma Vetta, which is to say that he is somebody who's wearing the okra robes, the saffron robes, and he's uh, preaching religion. He's founding a religion and expounding on that. Uh, he, of course, has the best for uh, human beings and all other beings uh, in his heart, but he cannot be taken to be the highest ideal because there is a class above him or his class of beings, which are represented through the rishis. And there he actually talks about the various kinds of rishis, Rajarshis, Devarshis, Brahmarshis. And among the Rajarshis, especially, he talks about uh, people like Janaka and uh, Sri Ramachandra and uh, Bhishma, Lakshmana, Yudhishthira, and so on and so forth. His point is that these are kings as well as philosophers. At, a, at the same time, they are sitting on the Simhasana, they, they are sitting on the throne, they are at the helm of uh, affairs of a country, but they are also detached in their heart. Uh, an ideal of Karma Yoga, which has been expounded in Srimad Bhagavad Gita by Sri Krishna. But even among these Rajarshis, he says that Sri Krishna is a class apart in himself because we see that Yudhishthira becomes a Shishya of uh, Sri Krishna. Arjuna becomes a Shishya of Sri Krishna. Bhishma worships Sri Krishna at various junctures. We have seen that just before the killing uh, of uh, Shishupala, Bhishma was worshipping Sri Krishna. We also see that in the Shanti Parva, when uh, Yudhishthira is confused, he's actually breaking down, seeing the end of his family. Uh, even after getting the power of Hastinapur, he says that I am not satisfied with this uh, outcome of the war and I want to take up sannyasa. I want to go back to the forest. Uh, I want to relegate everything to my brothers and I want to go and find peace because this is not what I had wanted. So there we see a crisis. The, the king who is fittest to rule uh, is desirous of becoming a sannyasi. So therefore, Yudhishthira, despite all his uh, qualities of being detached while sitting on the throne, is not the highest ideal. Arjuna is neither the ideal. Bhishma is neither the ideal. The ideal is only and only Sri Krishna. Because at the same time, he is the teacher of all these uh, great Kshatriyas, the Rajashis, the kings come philosophers, as Plato would call them. And he is uh, perfectly detached from all sorts of uh, hankering after power. And at the same time, he has cultivated all the human faculties within himself. And Bunkim actually explained this, explains this in great detail in uh, his Krishna Charitra that Jnanarjan, Karyakarini, Chittaranjani, Sharidiki, all these vrittis, all these faculties have been cultivated, developed, and found fulfillment in Sri Krishna alone. 
he talks about how Sri Krishna had, right from his childhood, developed his Shaririki uh, Vritti or Shaririki faculty, the uh, bodily faculty. When he talks about how, as a young kid, in fact, you know, in his teens, he was able to beat the greatest warriors in the court of Kamsa. And Kamsa himself was, in fact, beaten in a fist fight uh, with, you know, in a Malla Yuddha uh, with Sri Krishna. So that is uh, shown by, uh, by, by Bankim Chandra as the cultivation and the final fulfillment of the Shaririki faculty. He goes on to cite such examples for each of the faculties that he has listed down as the principal ones for, for the fulfillment of Anushilan or cultivation. Yes. My question was more about its political leanings and how it was a political uh, commentary. How did it influence? It is, how yeah, it is a political commentary because it is set in a very uh, specific historical political setting, which I have mentioned at the beginning of my lecture. So you will see that the novel Anandamot is uh, opening in the years, uh, in the late years of 1760s, when uh, Chiyatra and Monnantar, the great family of the Bengali year 1176, uh, or the Gregorian calendar year 1769-1770 have taken place. And it is a time when that sort of a political, economic, and even moral ravaging of the, the Indian society, of the Indian psyche, and especially in Bengal, uh, that has taken place. It is the time when the Mughal rule is in its decline, and uh, the Nawabs of uh, Bengal, who were erstwhile governors of the Mughal Empire in Bengal have achieved autonomy and they are misusing that power. You know, there is no order in the country and um, they are also religious fanatics and uh, they just go and pick up the cattle, the woman folk and so on and so forth. All sorts of mischiefs are done. On top of that, the British East India Company has uh, attained the Diwani or the tax collecting rights. So it is a dual problem for especially the dwellers of the Bengal province of that time, 1760s, late 1760s. And this results in a great famine, which, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, there, there are different estimates, but one estimate that has been mentioned by D.N. Lorenzen, who I referred to in my lecture, uh, says that 10 million, approximately 10 million people had died. One third of the then uh, Bengal's population had been wiped out in this famine. So you can imagine the kind of moral as well as, uh, you know, economic, political repercussions that could have taken place. And in fact, the Sanyasi rebellion is a direct outcome of this, uh, this sort of mismanagement of resources and political affairs, economic affairs of Bengal in particular. So uh, it finds its uh, resources, the novel finds its resources in a very politically charged scenario. And thus, it inspires a band of young Bengali revolutionary nationalists to create samitis, to create associations, organizations which are modeled after the organization that we get to see in Anandamot, which is named Anandamot. Okay? It is a mutt, it is a religious you know, quarter where uh, a band of uh, sannyasis who have given up their family are organizing themselves, training themselves in order to rebel against the dual forces of the British East India Company as well as the Muslim Nawab of Bengal. So uh, this is the uh, political underpinnings of the novel. 
It's pretty good. You have quite elaborately said. My basic question is, you know, we have a very long preaching about uh, Dharma Tattva and Bankim Chandra has given the practice faculties, means you can say the Anushalan Tattva, how we can reach the ultimate. So my basic question is why we have failed to achieve at least after the independence that partly you answered because of our you know education system and all these things but how can you further go ahead how can you divide the thing how can you formulate something so that we can go ahead implementing this thing thank you shopping babu for your question so uh, one of the ways through which we can achieve this is to bring back into discourse uh, texts like Dharmatattva, texts like Ananda Mott, texts like Krishna Charitra even, and discuss their contents uh, more and more to the younger generations who might be quite unaware of the existence of these concepts as explained by Bunkim in uh, these uh, works. And uh, to go on provoking thought provoking questions, doubts in the minds of those, especially, uh, you know, the thought leaders and the policymakers of this country and even of the world uh, to, uh, to, to, to make them think about what are the, the, the failures, what are the fundamental flaws that have resulted in the failures of attaining uh, the ultimate fulfillment and perfect balance of the cultivated faculties of human beings in this country and even abroad. So one of the things that uh, I believe is uh, very, very crucial in attaining that is to uh, bring back into discourse and uh, discuss more and more the works of people like Bonkim, which uh, we have been trying to do. If you see, uh, you know, this is uh, this can be regarded as uh, a reinitiating of that discourse, uh, which many others have done. I am told by Aparnaji at the beginning of this talk that Raghav Sharan Sharmaji, if I'm not mistaken, has also given a talk uh, on uh, Anushilan, uh, the concept of Anushilan uh, in Hindi. And I'm very much looking forward to listen to that talk. And uh, uh, another important uh, aspect of, uh, uh, you know, uh, translating this into a reality is to bring these texts, bring these discourses into mainstream uh, education as well. Uh, so this is something that we have been trying to do in uh, our university especially. We uh, have programs both at the PG and UG levels where we uh, have kept works of booking as uh, course material. So we are actually going to offer an MA program in liberal education and research uh, from the next academic year onwards, uh, which will primarily focus on research and preparing uh, researchers in humanities and uh, social sciences uh, disciplines. A discourse of humanities and social sciences disciplines are currently not very satisfactory, uh, as I would say, and we are trying to pump into it uh, the right texts, the right concepts, that we need for our uh, generation, that we need for future generations, in fact. I think the Sanyasi Rebellion is a topic that uh, deserves a discussion on its own. 
for now yeah. i can direct you to the works of uh, rc majumdar and dn lorenz yeah, yeah. who have uh, uh, written uh, some material on sanyasi rebellion and uh, uh, especially uh, on the on the on the participation of the sanyasis the hindu sanyasis uh, who uh, used to come from akhadas uh, mostly located in uttar pradesh in current uttar pradesh and their uh, associations with the mats and akhadas in uh, bengal by bengal i do not mean only the present state of west bengal but the entire uh, province of bengal and uh, uh, entire province of uh, bengal as it existed as it uh, was constituted in the uh, british era uh, constituting uh, of uh, the east pakistan or bangladesh of present day and uh, you know uh, even certain districts of assam tripura and uh, bengal okay yes my question is uh, you said that we are we are planning to uh, incorporate this thing in the education system and we means uh, is there any institution or yes sir. something yes. like that yes sir so uh, primarily in the university where i currently teach uh, namely rishihood university and uh, even within the university uh, there is ashram school of public leadership which is a constituent school of the university where we are going to offer pg and ug level programs we already are running a pgd program but we are going to offer this in a much more systematic and fuller manner in the upcoming programs of our school and of our university especially focusing on uh, the humanities and social sciences research at the ma pg level 